Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, professor at York University in Toronto. We're now getting close to the end of the series, Early Christian Portraits of Jesus. So far we've been looking at gospel portraits and the gospels as biographies of Jesus and seeing how they portray Jesus and what that tells us about the Christian groups that are using or reading those gospels or the authors who wrote them. Now we move on to the last document we're going to look at in this series, and in this case it is not a gospel. We're going to be examining the way in which Jesus is portrayed in the book of Hebrews. In particular, he's portrayed as both the ultimate high priest, in this case on the model of Melchizedek, an obscure figure that is mentioned only a couple of times in the Hebrew Bible, and at the same time also the ultimate sacrificial victim. So this episode and the following episode tries to place it within a broader cultural context so that you can make better sense of the portrayal of Jesus in this writing. If you're interested in reading further, my lecture here has been informed by a book by Barnabas Lindars, which is quite good, even though it takes a somewhat different approach than we usually take in this course, in the sense that it's more focused on theology. Nonetheless, Barnabas Lindars' book titled The Theology of the Letter to the Hebrews is a good short introduction. I hope you enjoy these final two episodes in this series. So, so far we've been talking about portrayals of Jesus and using the Gospels as a window into how some early followers of Jesus interpreted Jesus. And we've been looking at the Gospels as biographies and working through the narratives to see how the plot unfolds and how the plot serves to portray Jesus in a particular way. Ancient biographies are focused on the character of the person in question and we found that that was the case also with the Gospels the Gospels could be understood as ancient Greco-Roman biographies in the same way that we have other literature like that. As we worked through each of them though and got an understanding of how that particular author portrayed Jesus, we simultaneously asked the question of what does this tell us about the author? We were interested in the question of who is the author, what sort of group of Jesus followers does the author belong to, and with, for example, Mark, we began to see a Gentile author writing to a primarily Gentile audience in its original context. Using the portrayal of Jesus in Mark, you could begin to say something about the Christian groups that were using that portrayal of Jesus, that were reading or hearing that story of Jesus told. Likewise with Matthew, we did the same in each of the Gospels. In the case of Matthew, we had a Judean author writing to a Judean audience, and that came across very clearly in the portrayal of Jesus as the new Moses. And we began to see insights then into types of Christianity in each case. We began to see a little bit about a community, you could say, behind the gospel and behind the portrayal of Jesus that we were unpacking. Now, we're done with the gospels that we're going to cover, but what we do have is further portrayals of Jesus and other types of early Christian literature. We have authors in the process of writing their document, showing us how they understand Jesus, showing us what the portrait of Jesus is for them. The book of Hebrews is a good example of this. So in a way, we're continuing on in the same theme of early Christian portraits of Jesus here, 
But now we're moving on from Gospels to an entirely different genre. In this case, the genre is a bit ambiguous, but the book of Hebrews calls itself a word of exhortation. Not only that, but it ends in a way that sounds like a letter. We can think of it as a document that was specifically written to try and convince a particular group of Jesus followers to think in certain ways about Jesus. And in the process, this will soon see Hellenistic Judean author presented a very particular understanding of who Jesus is. So that we can ask the question, what is the portrait of Jesus in the book of Hebrews? We'll soon see that the main understanding of Jesus here is as the ultimate high priest and as the ultimate sacrifice. Bit of an irony there, obviously. The high priest usually engages in the slaughter or at least in the sprinkling of the blood of a slaughtered victim for the sacrifice. This was a means by which sin was accounted for on behalf of the people. But in this case, the high priest is also the slaughtered victim. Jesus is portrayed in a way that is both the sacrificial victim and the ultimate high priest. And it's a very Judean portrayal of Jesus, you could say. Now, despite the fact that the book of Hebrews gives a very Judean portrayal of Jesus, there is a long history of interpreting Hebrews in a particular way. And that is as an example of supersessionism. Supersession is the term that is used for the idea of something superseding and completely replacing something else. And so traditionally the book of Hebrews has been interpreted as an instance of supersessionism, of an early Christian author saying Christianity replaces Judaism, is a quick way of saying it. What I want to really draw attention to, though, in the process of discussing this portrayal of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, is that things are far more complicated than that. You cannot simplify things by seeing the book of Hebrews as uh, representing a view that says Christianity is separate from Judaism. So this book of Hebrews is part of a whole debate about the parting of the ways, as scholars call it. The parting of the ways between two Judean movements between the Jesus movement ultimately becoming Christianity and Judaism ultimately developing from rabbinic Judaism into what we have as modern Judaism today. The book of Hebrews is often used as evidence for the splitting. I want to complicate that. I want to say that it's not as clear cut as that, although we'll see how scholars came up with that scenario. But this is a very Judean author. You couldn't come across a more Judean portrayal of Jesus in some respects than you have in the book of Hebrews, which obviously complicates the notion that this is Christianity replacing Judaism. So that's my main point for today, some of those things I've just thrown around. Let's get into some introductory matters on the book of Hebrews before we get into that situation and the response. Most scholars would date the book of Hebrews after 70 CE. Some have suggested the possibility of it being written before the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. However, the overall force of the argument in the book of Hebrews seems to reflect a Judean struggling, in part, with the destruction of the temple. And that you can make most sense of the book of Hebrews if it is written after 70 CE, after the destruction of the temple. In connection with the Gospel of Matthew, we've talked about how important the destruction of the temple was and how much of a catastrophe it was for Judean culture and how much of a struggle it was to figure out what to do in light of the destruction of the symbolic center of your cultural way of life. The author of the book of Hebrews is another Judean struggling with the destruction of the temple and coming up with a very particular answer to how to conceive of things in light of it. 
And central to it is the portrayal of Jesus as the high priest in a different temple. Not the high priest in the physical temple that was destroyed in Jerusalem, but rather Jesus as the ultimate high priest and once for all sacrifice that Jesus in another temple in heaven is the high priest. And this is the way in which the book of Hebrews to some degree copes, tries to figure out a way to go on without a temple. So most scholars would agree that this dates after 70 CE, after the destruction of the temple. The good thing about the book of Hebrews that you don't always have is that it's quoted by another early Christian author. And that other early Christian author can quite securely be dated to the time of the mid-90s CE. First Clement is a letter uh, attributed to Clement, the Bishop of Rome, but written from the Christians at Rome to the Christians at Corinth. And in the process of the writing, there's a quotation, it seems, from the book of Hebrews. And so the book of Hebrews must predate 95 CE. So it's one of these cases where you can narrow things down quite well between 70 and 95 CE. The author of this document is never told to us. As I stated, you don't have an opening of a letter like you expect in a letter. So we just simply don't know who wrote it. Later tradition associates it with Paul because, as you know, with the way things work, early Christian writings, later people felt a need for them to be identified with someone. Generally, there's no suggestion that this is written by Paul anymore. What we do know, though, is it's a Hellenistic Judean. And we know this simply by the fact that they're totally saturated in Hebrew scriptures. You would find it difficult to find an early Christian document that uses the Bible more than the book of Hebrews uses the Bible. The Hebrew Bible, the Judean Bible, quoting it constantly, subtly alluding to it in all kinds of ways. Its entire argument is based on a very thorough knowledge of the cultic explanation in Leviticus. The explanation of how the cult in honor of Yahweh is to function of how the tent is to function, of how the priests are to do sacrifices within the tent, of the whole idea of sacrifice being central to accounting for the sins of the people. All of these very Judean concepts and very uh, important concepts in the Hebrew Bible saturate the entire writing. This is coming across as a Hellenistic Judean. Why? Because it's written in Greek. That's where the Hellenistic side of it comes from. In fact, of the writings of the New Testament, remember that all of them are in Greek as we have them. All of them are in Greek. So they're all Hellenistic to some degree. Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. You guys learned that very thoroughly. But when you look at the actual Greek composition and style of Greek and how well the Greek comes across, the book of Hebrews is the best Greek in the entire New Testament. On top of that, we're soon going to see that the author also has very platonic ways of expressing his Judean concepts. In some ways, you could compare him to someone like Philo, the Judean in first century Alexandria who lives in Egypt, who is very Judean, whose writings are devoted to expressing the value of the Hebrew Bible and of the law and of the covenant God made with, with the Judeans and of the superiority of Judean culture. And yet, he writes in Greek, and he's very thoroughly taught in Platonic philosophy, Philo living in Alexandria. So you could compare someone like the author of the book of Hebrews to Philo in some respects. We'll soon see where these Platonic ideas pop out in the portrayal of Jesus and in the whole question of how the book of Hebrews portrays the cult, the rituals that take place in the temple. In terms of audience, the audience too seems to be Judeans. 
whole force of the argument we're going to get into soon is this author trying to convince people to stick with the groups devoted to Jesus primarily and to not go to the synagogue as much anymore. It seems to be he's trying to convince people that formerly were very focused on Jesus as the Messiah who are now not focusing on Jesus enough in his view, in the author's view. The audience is not focusing on Jesus enough. The final thing to say about the context of this, I've already alluded to, and that is that the temple is destroyed in 70 CE. The symbolic center of their whole way of life has been destroyed, and we can see the entire book of Hebrews, in a way, as a response to that destruction of the temple. In the same way, to give a comparison of something we're going to read later, the John's Apocalypse, another writing by a Judean who believed Jesus was the Messiah in the late first century, and his entire writing is a series of visions. And it seems to be a series of visions responding to the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. So there's many Judeans who believe Jesus is the Messiah in the first century who struggle with the destruction of the temple. And a couple of cases where writings ended up in the New Testament where the entire document is focused on sort of solving the mystery of what to do in light of that. Let's get into the overall situation and response that is involved in the book of Hebrews. As I pointed out, there's epistolary characteristics of the book of Hebrews. In other words, it ends with greetings, it ends with things that sound like it's a letter. It doesn't open with a letter opening, but we can look at it in the same way we look at a letter, in the sense of asking what was the situation that led this author to write this document, or this word of exhortation, as he calls his own writing. What response does he have to that situation? We have some hints within the book of Hebrews itself, some strong hints of what the situation is and what the response is. We'll be able to make better sense of the portrayal of Jesus once we understand the context in which this is being written. The key passage, along with some others though, but the key passage to look at to begin with is chapter 13, verses 7 to 18. So here we're in the final section of the whole writing, coming very close to the ending. And there's this paragraph here that reveals a lot about what's going on. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. Typical exhortation, moral exhortation, paranesis that we're familiar with. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Focus on Jesus that we're going to soon see in the whole book of Hebrews. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is well that the heart be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited their adherents. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. This whole focus of explicitly him saying, go outside the camp. It's using the analogy of the priesthood in the tent. In other words, priestly camp. Going outside of the synagogue seems to be the focus of this particular exhortation that we're seeing here. And there's other places in the book of Hebrews that begins to make that even clearer. It uses different analogies for it, including the idea of leaving behind the old cult, leaving behind the old priesthood, and going into a new priesthood. He uses that analogy. He's not literally talking about priesthoods. 
it seems, he's talking about followers of Jesus who are Judeans are not supposed to be involved in the synagogues fully anymore, are instead to have their own groups separate from the synagogues. And we'll see this uh, more fully as we get into things. Repeatedly, throughout the book of Hebrews, he come, the author comes back again and again, intersp interspersed within his discussion of the portrayal of Jesus, which is meant to convince them to do something. He's always talking about the dangers of falling away. The author is characterizing what the audience he is writing to has done. He sees their involvement in the Judean synagogues, I'm suggesting to you. Remember, they could be Judean synagogues in Asia Minor. We don't even know where this is from. Could be in the diaspora somewhere. It probably is. But his, he sees dangers of Judeans who believe Jesus is the Messiah falling away from Jesus, involving themselves fully in the Jewish synagogues without paying proper attention to gathering together with fellow followers of Jesus. And this is what is characterized as falling away throughout the book of Hebrews. Apostasy is another way of putting it. He characterized this falling away as falling away into the practices of an old covenant. The atonement for sins, the way of making up for errors on the part of humans in relation to God, making up for sins, seems to be central for, in some way. We can't quite figure out what but seems to be a central aspect of why these people are falling away from following Jesus in the view of this author. It's not quite clear why. His response to this overall situation is hold fast. And his response to this is Jesus is the ultimate high priest and ultimate sacrificial victim who therefore makes up for the errors of the people in the ultimate way. And we don't need the other means by which you would find ways of making up for your sin within the synagogues. Hold fast is the repeated term that corresponds to falling away. He's always talking about the dangers of falling away and the need to hold fast. And you'll see that terminology over and over again. Not only that, but the holding fast involves what we just read. Go with Jesus outside the camp. How I'm interpreting it. Have your own groups of Jesus followers apart from the Judean synagogues. Another phrase in that section I read that is important to note is uh, using the analogy of the cult again, of the altar and the temple and, and all that. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, priests of the old order, order, have no right to eat. So here is a Judean follower of Jesus who is making some somewhat strong distinctions between followers of Jesus and other Judeans you'll get even more of an inkling as to that situation and response now as we work through the portrayal of Jesus. And you'll see how the portrait of Jesus as the ultimate high priest and this ultimate sacrificial victim serve the function of convincing the audience that they should not fall away, convincing the audience that they need to hold fast to Jesus, and convincing the audience that they need to be worshiping the Judean God together and devoting themselves to the Jewish Messiah Jesus together apart from the other Judean synagogues. And we'll see that as we work our way through. The overall way in which you can understand the book of Hebrews in terms of how it portrays Jesus is a series of analogies and comparisons which show that Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant as the ultimate high priest and sacrificial victim. We'll soon see there's a complicated aspect to the new. Better, yes, but there's a complication to the new. What's complicated is the platonic notions 
the Greek Hellenistic notions that this author has. Because it turns out sometimes that new is in fact original. New replacing the old. There's some language that sounds like that. However, this author sometimes thinks of what he's calling the new as the original. So really, the new isn't so new after all, partly because of the platonic ideas that this author has, and I'll get into that soon, but I wanted to at least mention it already. Let's work our way through how he builds up these series of analogies to show the superiority, he believes, of Jesus, and that therefore the audience he's writing to should pay more attention to Jesus, not hang out in the synagogues as much, and have their own gatherings of Jesus followers, separate from the synagogue, Judean Jesus followers. He works through a series of analogies showing that Jesus is superior to characters that are well known within Judean scripture. First of all, he begins in chapter 1 arguing that Jesus is superior to angels. Uh, this is in the, in the very first section, already in the first few sentences. In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there's a bit of a high Christology here already. Sounds a little bit like the Gospel of John and this idea of the son having a role in the creation of the world. Doesn't explain how though. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. We're starting to get a somewhat high portrayal of Jesus here in terms of Christology. It's a less human and more divine Jesus that we're having talked about here than, uh, than what you have in some other early Christian literature. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. So this whole first chapter is about how Jesus is superior to angels. In this role of being superior to angels, Jesus is also the pioneer of salvation in the first two chapters. End of chapter 2 already puts on the table, though, what is going to be the ultimate portrayal of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, talking about Jesus being human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the errors of the people. For because he himself had suffered and been tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Jesus is the ultimate high priest that's going to be developed later on. The author goes on in chapters 3 to 4 to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses. Therefore, holy brethren, chapter 3, who share in a heavenly call, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. Okay, he's like Moses so far. He's like Moses. We've got that in Gospel of Matthew. Yet Jesus has been counted worthy of as much more glory than Moses, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. You then, after the hold fast, have a section that comes to the falling away in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And so you have a whole section talking about the danger of falling away already in this section that underlines that real context. This is written to real people here. That this author believes that there's a danger among real people there of falling away from understanding Jesus as central. 
And the whole point of the whole document is to show Jesus is central. Let's move on now to what is the most important aspect of how the book of Hebrews portrays Jesus as superior to figures within the Hebrew scriptures. And that is that Jesus is superior to Levi. Levi is the ancestor of what is considered the genealogy that would be priests, right? The Levitical priesthood comes from descendancy from Levi. And so the book of Hebrews is here now going to argue that Jesus is superior to Levi. In the overall portrayal of Jesus as Melchizedek, and we're going to have to explain where that comes from, is part and parcel of the argument that Jesus is superior to Levi. In chapters 4 to 5 you have this developed, and then return to again in, in far more depth, chapters 7 to 10. So these are the two sections I'm going to help you work through right now, chapters 4 to 5 and 7 to 10. Let's look at 4 to 5 just briefly here, and then I'll unpack and give you some context for understanding this Melchizedek portrayal of Jesus. I'm in chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for the errors of the people, for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. So it's just talking about the function of the priest, the function of the high priest. Remember, there's only one high priest at a time and making up for the sins of the people. And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, and this is one of the few references to Melchizedek, it's going to be, he's quoting, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, quoting from the Psalms again and saying that Jesus is the figure that's being talked about in those Psalms. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the fulfillment of Melchizedek. He's the new Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Byrne's Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.